Hello, everyone. Welcome to Turntables and Tea. I'm Charlie. And I'm Corey. And this week, we're going to rock a little as we discuss Stevie Nicks' third studio album, Rock a Little. This <laughs> album was released in 1985. I cannot wait to discuss this one. Yeah, this one's near and dear to your heart. I'm excited to learn. Of course, I've done my uh, my research, but you know... You know a lot more about Miss Stevie Nicks than than most people, so I'm excited to hear some tidbits you got in here and and lay my my take down with you as well. This could could be a fun one. Will be a fun one. Oh, it definitely will. I have a lot to say about Ms. Nicks. This might break our record for longest episode yet. I'm not going to lie to you. I have a lot to say about Stevie Nicks, but let's get her. I want to hear it. It's a good thing because she's given us so much to discuss. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I know what I'm talking about. Reading and going through and trying to like piece together pictures, but I, as always, I'm excited to hear what I've taken from it. How much of that is true in in the reality of the situation? Because I know you know. <laughs> yes, uh, I do know quite a bit about Ms. Nix. I've been a fan since I was ten. There you go. So I know quite a bit about her and. Uh, because of that, I will set some background for you all. So, as I said, Rock a Little was released in 1985. Uh, it was the follow-up to her successful sophomore album, The Wild Heart, which was really key for her because it meant she was not a fluke as a solo artist. Belladonna hit big in 81 and 82, but she had a successful follow-up as well. So she was a major star in her own right as a solo recording artist outside of Fleetwood Mac by 1984 when she began work on the follow-up to The Wild Heart Rock a Little. Ms. Nix was once again working with Jimmy Iovine. He had produced the first two solo albums for her. So, of course, she went back with him, made perfect sense, and the album was originally to be titled Mirror Mirror. Perfect title for a Stevie Nicks album, and they were working together on it, but... Throughout these sessions, Mr. Iovine was not too happy with the direction it was going. And Stevie Nicks was dating Joe Walsh, formerly of the Eagles at this point, but they were a rock couple. And uh, Mr. Iovine wasn't too crazy about that. Jimmy was not happy and he left the sessions midway through. This was definitely complicated by the fact that Iovine and Stevie had dated for a bit in the early 80s. But by this point, that was over. Okay, so, so it was totally over with Iovine and her before this album began, correct? Her yes. and Wal- it wasn't like in the middle of the album. That was before. No. Okay. Their personal relationship was over, but working together in a repeat of history, perhaps, didn't go too well for them, especially now that Stevie was with another man. Okay. So wasn't working out. And uh, things had to start over. She kind of had to scramble to get it together. She used a variety of different producers to get it together because unfortunately, Stevie Nicks was not at her top mental aptitude because of all the cocaine she was using in 1985. She'd been using it for a while at this point, but we are at the height of her addiction at this point during this era. It was nonstop. She couldn't function without it. It was a bad situation. And as a result of that, not everybody is fond of this album. It represents a really messy era for Stevie Nicks, personally, and some would say professionally. There's 20. No, I'm sorry. 
over 20. I I just counted them again. Two, yeah. four, six, eight, 10, 12. We're in the upper 20s, almost 30 musicians on this album. Musicians alone. And then you hit, I mean, the technical credits are ridiculous. It's about 30 people there. And the production credits are, are like eight or nine. Uh, that's including, with production credits, that's including the album uh, shots and stuff like that. But still, I mean, producers, we got one, two, three, four, five, five, one, two, six producers on this album. Evine, Knowles, Mike Campbell, Chris Sanford, Keith Olson. It sounds like a recipe for disaster. Um, that was when I read the wiki before I even listened to the album and was like, holy moly, man. Either this is the biggest family album ever, like get everybody together, we're going to have a blast, or, and as I found out, it was more of, like you said, a scramble uh, where people were sort of looking at each other like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. The first two albums were a lot more unified, and uh, most notably, I think it's reflected in the songwriting credits, because as we know, Stevie Nicks is first and foremost a songwriter. She's well known for writing her songs herself. This album had more co-writers than any before it, and two of the songs on this album don't have a single word written by Stevie Nicks which is pretty shocking at this point. It definitely shows uh, where she was. And uh, this wouldn't be the first case of this happening, sadly. But here's the... I'm so sorry, uh, because I'm totally enthralled by by this aspect of the album. Do you think the reason that two of those songs don't have any Nick's uh, lyrical influence or writing period is because they had to work around her at this point to get tracks done or is it more of she's almost in this state where they're going to just take advantage of her and be like yep we're putting this one on the album record it well in the case of one of them it was to get a hit on the album was why an outside writer was used and this wasn't the first time that happened after all belladonna had stopped dragging my heart around because she was told you don't have a hit on the album which is crazy to think about because of course Edge of 17 was a hit, but at the time they didn't hear it. And Stop Dragging My Heart Around, in my opinion, was a little bit more organically given to her. You know, that was between her and Tom. They had a great relationship. I don't know the background between either of these songs that were written for her on this album, but I feel like that was more of a gift than anything, you know? It was, and... We really only know a lot about the background of one of those songs because it was the album's lead single. There isn't much information about the other one at all. But here's the crazy thing. At least to me, somehow Rock A Little is a really cohesive album, in my opinion. Are we sharing opinions this far? Because I don't want you to get pissed at me just yet. I'm guessing that. (laughs) I don't know, man. I don't know. I, I respect and love her and her voice and her stylings, even outside of, and even more so sometimes outside of Fleetwood Mac. Maybe I went into high expectation-wise. I tried to put myself in a seat. The third time I listened to this, I tried to put myself into a seat of, all right, it's 84. I just ran down to the store, copped this album, and I, I put it on. Here we go. I'm pumped to hear Stevie Nicks. And I, I couldn't find a spot. I couldn't find... A cohesiveness, as you were talking about. In my opinion, it starts to sound like a big old jumbled soup where there's too many cooks in the kitchen on this one. Um, and 
I'm not pissed at you because this is not an uncommon opinion among fans. This is a divisive album. People either love it or hate it. I don't hate it, but I just, I guess it fell short on my expectations. And that's fair. And I think it fell short on even the record buying public's expectations in 1985. It was released late in the year of November of 1985, and it did well, but not as well as the two previous albums. It peaked at number 12 on the Billboard 200. Not bad, but the previous two albums have been top five albums, so a step down. Singles weren't quite as big, but I will say she did still manage to sell more albums than many of her peers at this time were, with the exception of Heart. They were on fire in 85 and 86. But Stevie Nicks was missing the boat a bit. Do you think the lack of sales came, and just in your opinion, do you think the lack of sales came from the public starting to lose faith in her or her image being tarnished by her very openly and publicized drug use, uh, and then also having to go up against people like, you know, like a emerging Madonna or Prince getting ready to take off or or Cindy Lauper. Do you think it was the public losing faith in her? Is my real question, or do you think it was on musical technicality of this album? I think a lot of it really just had to do with the times were beginning to change. Heard. Madonna was huge by this point. She had broken through with Like a Virgin a year prior to this album being released and was at that point a record-breaking artist bigger than any woman ever had been in the industry. And frankly, all of Stevie Nicks's peers faltered amongst Madonna, for better or for worse. And uh, it did create an issue for a lot of 70s stars commercially. And uh, this album still managed to do better than its follow-up, which was released in 1989. But it was the beginning of her commercial decline, I guess you could say, even though it still was successful. The commercial success is, in hindsight, greatly overshadowed by the personal crises that Stevie Nicks was dealing with during the making of this album. And I don't think Stevie Nicks looks back on it very fondly. She'll speak about it when she has to, but she hasn't performed many of these songs in, if at all, in close to 30 years at this point. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. These songs are never done live anymore. Not even the hits. That's mind blowing. I mean, I I guess that speaks to, or I would think that would speak to how much she disliked where she was in her life at this point. Yeah. It was was, at at the end of this tour was Betty Ford for her, right? Yes, it was. Because the tour was a wild experience in and of itself. But rock a little has its fans, has its haters, has its in-betweeners. I think we'll hear sides of both of that today, is what I'm thinking. Yeah, we definitely will. But I wanted to do this after talking a bit about it on the Steve Miller podcast. I thought, oh shit, I like rock a little. I want to discuss it, because even if you don't like it, it's at least ripe for discussion. I think we can both agree on that. Most definitely. And it for anyone that's listening to this that hasn't listened to the the Miller, I mean the uh, Tom Petty one that we did, uh, this connects in so many ways. I mean we're we're still in that same yeah. universe, that same circle of, of musicians, which is super cool. 
Yes, and Stevie Nicks, even at her worst, is an interesting artist to discuss. It's why she's one of my top five artists ever. One of the reasons I love her, I don't think she's ever boring. And uh, that's why I thought this would be a fun album to discuss. So with that being said, I'm ready to get started on Rock A Little. Let's do it. Rock A Little begins with a song called I Can't Wait. Stevie Nicks co-wrote this song with Rick Knowles, who she had known since she was a teenager. And uh, she heard the music that he came up with for this. She knew this was special and she immediately wrote a song to it and lyrics. And those ended up being I Can't Wait. And in her liner notes for her 1991 compilation, Time Space, she said, to understand this song, you sort of have to let yourself go a little crazy. Love is blind. It never works out but you just have to have it. And uh, I think that kind of sums this up. This song is crazy. There's a lot going on here. I don't know if it's altogether cohesive. I kind of still love it a lot. Actually, I think this song slaps. What do you think of it? I I enjoyed this one. Uh, It's like that pure 80s sound for me, the electric drums. It's a nice starter for this album. Hearing her talk about it or reading her reading what she had said about the process of this song, I could see where she was. The electricity in her head um, that lives inside this song, I can see where she was. It's a good starter. I had, you know, it's not my A-plus song on the album, but it's a a good one. Yeah, this one's always gotten me hyped up. I've known this song for a long time. So when I was 10 was when I first heard Stevie Nicks solo and heard who she was. It was in my friend DJ's dad's car. He played a bit of her CD and I heard the first two songs on Time Space. Sometimes it's a bitch and stop dragging my heart around. I thought, I like this lady. I like her voice. And we would go on these trips to the flea market. And I would buy cassette tapes because they were a bit cheaper than CDs and it had music I like. And one day I got the Time Space tape. I Can't Wait was one of the songs on it. So I have a lot of nostalgia for this song. I've always really liked it. So did a lot of the public. Uh, This was the album's second single in the U.S. and Germany, but the first single in the U.K. and Australia. And it made it up to number 16 on the Hot 100 in 1986. Interestingly, this song possibly could have been bigger, but when it was released, Stevie Nicks was in Australia with Tom Petty and Bob Dylan on tour supporting them. Just hanging out with them or was she co-headlining with them? No, she was just hanging out with them. (laughs) That's so great. Because she wanted to support Tom Petty because he was hesitant about going on tour with Bob Dylan. And she said, no, you're doing that. And she went out to basically be his road wife because Jane Petty wasn't going with him. Heard. Man, she she really did love him. Like in a big brother kind of way. Oh, yeah. So wow. In fact, she got in trouble with her management eventually for not being there for I Can't Wait because this video was getting played on MTV and David Letterman saw this video and he thought it was hysterical. Is this why she wasn't on Letterman because she was in Australia? Yes. I was trying to figure out what was going on there. Oh, that's that layers so much more onto that story. Yeah. I'm, he was pissed. And he joked about it, but you know Letterman, he has, he has, he's a prideful man. No, (laughs) and her management sent him a cease and desist, but he turned it into a recurring segment in 1986 by saying, these are the appearances Stevie Nicks will be making soon. (laughs) My personal favorite was 
walk on on the facts of life. I didn't see that one. The bloopers one was great. Uh, Co-hosting Sally Jesse Raphael for three episodes was great. Like they came up with some good ones. And also the case of the two hot curlers. The two hot curlers, the people's court. (laughs) Letterman always cracks me up, though. I love David Letterman. Oh, yeah. Truly a legendary comedian. 86 was a fun year for him. It was also the year Cher called him an asshole on his own show. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So he was having a good time, but he loved the video for it. And yes, these segments were soundtracked to the I Can't Wait video, which is a production. Stevie Nicks said in her commentary on the Crystal Visions video DVD that this was the biggest video she ever did. And you can kind of see it. She has her crew she has her backup singers Sharon Solani and Laurie Perry and her brother Chris and Brad Jeffries who had started working with her on the stand back video are her backup dancers in this video and uh, Mick Fleetwood also appears out of nowhere at some points it's a uh, it's a wild ride that video man uh, those same four people backup danced in another video for this album right yes they did <laughs> That one wasn't quite as wild as the I Can't Wait video, though. She, in hindsight, Stevie Nixis asked herself, she said, I would go back and say, could you lay off the pot, the Coke, and the tequila for just a few days so you could look better? I read that. I read that. She she, she definitely was not proud of the way she was looking in this video or like we were talking about, you know, the way the state she was in during this time, especially during this album. No, and... Uh, Yeah, the video, I think it's iconic. It's one of my favorite 80s videos. Put perfectly. It is a great 80s video. You know, they're uh, experimenting with slow motion. She's breaking through a wall at one point. It's definitely a a pure 80s Stevie Nicks video. I go back to this song is pure 80s electronic drum the whole nine. You know, it really is the 80s. (laughs) Yeah. This is a pure dance tune, too. Stevie Nicks hadn't had a pure dance tune quite like this. This was her first song to ever chart on the club charts because this was a hit in gay clubs. Okay. Which it kind of makes sense because I think, sadly, the gay community was dealing with AIDS circa 1985-1986. And uh, they were looking to this woman who was also struggling yet somehow still making a music video, triumphing in her own way. And that mattered at this point in time. I like that. That's a cool thought. It was mentioned in the Nick's biography, Gold Dust Woman, which has some serious factual errors in it. I am not going to deny that. But it is not a terrible starting point if you want to get to know about Miss Nick's. Just be sure to check everything because some of it's not all the way there at all. Anyway, that's enough about I Can't Wait. I guess we've been talking about it for a bit, but there's a lot to say with the song and the video. There is indeed. Um, The only other thing I want to say is that she only ever did this song on the Rock A Little Tour because it was a hard song to do. So even though it was a hit, hasn't been done live since 1986. Wow. That still blows my mind. Yep. That's that's a note I'm taking away that I didn't know coming into this one. None, none of these performed after that. That's wild. I mean, for the most part, yes. A lot of these weren't even performed to begin with, ever. Heard. And so, with that being said, we're going to move on to track number two, the title track, Rock a Little, parenthetical title, Go Ahead, Lily. 
This song was inspired by her dad, Jess Nix, and her friend, Rebecca, who encouraged her to keep on performing even if she didn't want to. And they said, you need to rock a little. And they referred to her as Lily, which in a weird way, this predates Seinfeld, but it reminds me of Kramer calling George's fiance, Susan Lily. <laughs> Just a little bit. Poor Lily. Rock a little, man. This one is uh, closer to the Stevie Nicks that I was expecting to hear. And in my opinion, this is the only track on the whole entire album that I really have that Iovine feeling uh, on the production of it. It also, unfortunately for me, this was the first time in the album where I started to hear that nasal register that i don't expect from her and some of her like vibrato started in the higher notes started to get a little weak in my opinion i enjoyed this it's a great cool down song for the second track but i started to worry you know what hearing that hearing her voice on this i was like oh man yeah her voice is definitely more strained on this album than it was previously to this point but i have to say for me it actually works really well that vocal You just hear the fragility in that voice, and it sums up perfectly where she was circa 1985. And she was keeping on going and rocking a little when she could. Her supporters were saying, go ahead, Lily, hit it. And that vocal just sums it up for me. And that's why I love her voice so much. Even if it is strange, just the heartache in it, it's a reminder of where we started with her. It's why the world connected to her so much when she did Landslide 10 years earlier. Mm, wow, what a great thought. What a, what a great silver lining spin on that too. And what a great way to relate that to the track perfectly put by a, a super fan of of Miss Stevie Nicks and not in a biased sense you know what I'm saying that was that was neat thank you for that one yeah I think this is yet another strong Stevie Nicks title track she had two previous ones this one is not like the previous two title tracks those are epic multi-part kind of songs with roaming narratives this is a lot simpler but I still really enjoy it and it just really sums up Stevie Nicks well circa 1985 and for that I got a lot of love for rock a little go ahead Lily go ahead Lily hit it <laughs> it's about time Lily for us to get on to track free sister honey sister honey so this song i mentioned on the steve miller episode because it was co-written with les dudek who wrote a song on that album and uh, this is an interesting song um to uh, put it lightly so i've always really enjoyed it i think it slaps it's a banger it's very catchy i really don't know what the hell this song is about though i'm so glad you said that i've got these wild thoughts of maybe what it could be but it it, it is a very interesting song uh the way it's laid down i almost feel like she's talking or having a conversation about her alternate personality and she's like you know referring to herself as the she in this third person it i went through the lyrics on this album uh on this album yes but on this song uh quite a few times trying to figure out where the mindset was and that's that's what i took away from it yes all she has said about this song is one when she was writing it with les dudek she felt that sister honey became a person and she did the drawing of the character of sister honey are you serious yes okay i can feel that i can feel that sister honey is a badass bitch 
Like if you read those or just listen to those lyrics, Sister Honey don't play. You can't have her. You know, you, you can you can only hope to contain Sister Honey. Yeah. <laughs> and knowing how Stevie Nicks writes her songs, I've always felt Sister Honey's probably just some fictional character. Heard. That was always how I took it, but. I looked online and one of my favorite things to do on the internet is actually look at people's interpretations of Stevie Nicks song lyrics. Nice. Because there's so many roads you can go down. And this one had some pretty uh, salacious interpretations. Oh, do tell, do tell. Spill this tea. I want to hear. So there are some people who think she's singing about her vagina. Okay. I can kind of see it. I have heard Honey referred to in that term in pop songs before. Mariah Carey is the first example that comes to mind. There are some who think that Sister Honey is a prostitute. I don't know about a prostitute. I guess you could take that from the lyrics. Yeah. The one I found most convincing, I saw a pretty detailed breakdown about somebody saying they think Sister Honey is cocaine. Oh, shit. Now I got to go back. Oh, it could be. It could be. Again, it all it lends to that alternate personality that that I, I felt, that character that you told me now that she even drew. It's definitely a personification of some kind of feelings that she had. Oh, man, cocaine. That's cool. I got to go back and, and, and yeah. check that out. I just always loved this song, and I think it's wild. One of my favorite things about Stevie Nicks is her songs can be interpreted that many ways because it's not always straightforward. And you're like, what is this? What is she thinking? But yet somehow it works. And I love this song a lot. This one just uh, it's a banger, too. Like you can dance to this. I can definitely see why it was not a single. I think it's a bit too out there lyrically to be a single. I mean, it's hard to imagine the song called Sister Honey on the radio. But in my fantasy world, it would have been and it would have been a number one hit because I love it. It slaps for me. It has a funkiness to it that uh, I didn't expect. But it's cool. It, it, it by the third listen, it really was one of my favorites on the album. Yeah, I loved it first listen, and I still do love it. So that's, that's awesome. What a banger, Sister Honey. Sister Honey. But next up, we have a more low key moment, possibly. Well, no, not actually the album's most low key moment, but an interesting song. I sing for the things. This one's pretty straightforward. It's about how Stevie Nicks, she is not in it for the money. And uh, this song dated back a few years. She first started work on it around 1981, actually. And she recorded it for The Wild Heart. And that version was unearthed in 2016 when that album got a deluxe reissue, which I hope Rock A Little gets one day because Belladonna and The Wild Heart did. But Rock A Little didn't. But that's getting beside the point here. So I Sing For The Things was first recorded for The Wild Heart. This version's pretty similar to that one, but a little different. I'm glad that she included it on this album instead. And I love that it followed one of the most out there 80s pop songs on the album. It told everybody, hey, take a step back. And even at the height of this wild, expensive drug I'm using all the time. This is why I'm here. This is why I started doing this. I sing for the things that money can't buy. And I think that's just a beautiful message. And 
I think this was a key time for her to put that message out there because she needed to probably remind herself why she was in this. I love that she's putting that feeling, that thought out there and and really showing where she's coming from. But as far as this album goes, this is this almost it might be my least favorite. I hate to say anything's my least favorite. And for me, it's a it's a cool slowdown track, but it really doesn't ever go anywhere. And I just this is another one of those too many cooks in the kitchen deals, you know, and, and this is an Iovine track, which is crazy to me because it doesn't sound like Iovine at all. Uh, in its production value and even the slide guitar or like the dobro but in the the background towards the end it just doesn't fit for me I, i'm not feeling this one this is one of the, the tracks that i wasn't feeling i guess the 80s happened to everybody production wise they were all hopping on trends that's true that's that's true. my best um suggestion for this one i do agree it's a bit overproduced but i still enjoy it the message just goes through for me and once again i really love her vocal it's similar to rock a little it just aches through and this was a key time for her to be doing that Perfect. so yep there's i sing for the things now, the next track is also an Iavine track, and it has more connections to our pals and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. She co-wrote Imperial Hotel with Mike Campbell, and Ben Montage plays on the track as well, and she even dedicated it to him. I think this is a decent rock tune. I'm going to say it. This is my least favorite on the album. I don't dislike it. I still think it's a solid tune, but it is my least favorite. It's kind of just there for me in the context. I still like it, though. I mean, I think it's cool that she's singing about where this person is. She's in a different location. I'm inclined to believe this is an entirely fictional character. I don't really think this is about her. Maybe that's why I don't like it as much as some of the others here. I feel there's more elements of her in the other songs. This one's a bit more detached for me. You're looking like you disagree with me on this. It's not that I disagree. It's, uh, It's that I totally disagree. (laughs) uh i i i really enjoyed the song and i took it as an anecdotal telling you know here's you know where to find me i'm at the imperial hotel you know i'll call you when i need you you know come come and see me when i when i want you to uh you know where i'm at and it, it felt like stevie Nicks to me uh reading through the lyrics and and listening through it it had that heartbreakers feel you know that's coming from tension campbell um and i enjoyed that and, and it felt more like Stevie Nicks to me than than a lot of the other tracks on this album. Maybe it was the Heartbreakers feel. Uh, maybe it was Campbell and Tank coming in on this. But it, I enjoyed this song. I mean, let me be clear. I still like this song, even though it's my least favorite. I like every song on this album. And for that matter, the first two Stevie Nicks solo albums. That's one of my favorite album runs ever are her first three solo albums. There isn't a song I dislike on them. There are people who will disagree with me on that, but every note of them is perfect in my opinion. So even though it's my least favorite, I still really like it. And anything involving Heartbreakers and Stevie Nicks together creates a winner. This was a single in Australia only. It charted at number 99 there. I don't think it got much of a push at that point. I think by that point, well, she was in rehab for one or starting it, maybe close to it. I don't know. Not much was done to promote it, I'm sure. I still enjoy this song. It's just not as much as others on the album. I'm starting to learn 
that and, and it just speaks to her prowess as a writer but a lot of these times i think it's her and it's these these fictional takes on her on on herself on the girl she knows whoever it is it just shows how great of a writer she is oh yes definitely my favorite songwriter of all time for me heard that it's not a contest but interestingly the next song on the album was one of two she did not write some become strangers the ender of side one one of the writers on the songs was david williams and he had a duo with his brother and they ended up recording their version a couple years later but somehow even though she didn't write this song i think it still sounds like a stevie nicks song and i like that the simps here are a bit more if possible sedate than on some songs before and after on this album i mean this is definitely more laid back than Sister Honey or I Can't Wait, that's for sure. I've always liked this one. It's a pretty simple, relatable tune. You know, sometimes your ex does become a stranger. It's somebody you used to know. And uh, I'm thinking the reason it works for me is because even though she didn't write it, there is somebody who I believe she had to have been thinking about when singing it, Mr. Lindsey Buckingham. Okay. Because by this point, Fleetwood Mac hadn't recorded together since 1982 and Mirage. Lindsey and Stevie were on really different paths by this point. They had hadn't even seen each other much at all. They were really in a different place, both of them, and uh, she might have felt this is a stranger. That's how I interpret her vocal here. I could see that. Uh, simple is a, a word that I would agree with you on this track. Um, it is a very simple track. It's easy on the ears. Almost a little bit too easy to be the final track, in my opinion, for this side. I would have flipped this at Imperial Hotel just to finish off the side of the album. I used the word empty when I was jotting down notes, but I I would much rather use the word simple uh, as far as this song goes. There's it, not too much there. It's a, it's a beautiful tune. I've heard this on the album a little bit already, and that's another reason why I was like, eesh. It's just, it's simple. It's simple. Not my fave, not my, my least fave. I think this is a song that's kind of just there for a lot of people, and I can see that being the case, but I've always really enjoyed it. Can't quite put my finger on why, but I always have. Heard that. So, like we said, the first side of the album is over, and we're on to side two, which begins with the album's lead single in the U.S., Talk To Me. Interestingly, a song not written by Stevie Nicks. And the reason for this, Stevie Nicks said in her DVD commentary for the video that Jimmy Iovine bought her this song because he knew it would be a hit for her. And Stevie Nicks admitted, I don't write hits. If I write a single, it's on accident. She admitted that. And she was given this song written by Chaz Sanford, who had a number one hit the year before by co-writing John Waits' Missing You. And this song sounds more than a little like it. This is another one I've known a long time because it's on Time Space. Again, I think this is a strong single i've always really liked it a lot and uh, she sounds great on it she had a hard time singing it because it wasn't her song but she ended up nailing it with an audience of one jim keltner and uh, a lot of people really liked this song it made it all the way up to number four on the hot 100 in early 1986 this is a totally 80s track especially with that sax solo which was played by her brother chris 
Oh, really? That was Chris. I thought that was Barney Wallen on that track, but I love that sax solo on, on oh, this track. I'm glad you do. It's definitely one of my favorite sax solos of the 80s. There's a lot to choose from, but this is one of my favorites. There's a strength that this song gets from, I guess, how it was written, written to be a hit or bought to be a hit. And I'm glad I heard you say it before I said it, that she struggled a little bit uh, because it wasn't her song. You, I I really think if you listen hard, you can hear her uh, trying to make it her song rather than just sing her songs like we're used to. Even towards the end, like that, she hits these wild higher notes than, than you're accustomed to hearing or I was accustomed to hearing her doing and uh, like mixed in with that nasal approach that she's starting to have at this point in her career it almost sounded like a little bit of cindy lauper at the end uh but it's a good strong track to uh to start off the second side yeah and it was a good single too i have to say it wouldn't have been my choice for first single i think i can't wait would have been my choice but i can definitely see why considering the songwriter having had a recent hit made sense as a single and Stevie herself even came to really love this song and said it had a bit of an Otis Redding feel to it for her, which I can kind of hear. Maybe this is something like he would have been doing if he were still living in 85 or 86, because this isn't too far off from what Aretha Franklin, Stevie Wonder were doing at this point. I could I could totally see that. And this song was nominated for a Grammy for Best Female Rock Performance. It lost to Back Where You Started by Tina Turner. Going to disagree with that decision. I think Miss Nick should have won, but the Grammys are bullshit. I think we both know that. They make a lot of wrong calls. Heard that. There's many more egregious ones than this one, believe it. But I wanted to note that just in another example of hey, Grammys, awards really don't matter that much because, uh, well, yeah, Miss Nick should have won. She didn't win in the category one time, not even for Edge of 17. She did not win a Grammy for Edge of 17. That's mind-blowing to me. That is tough. But it doesn't matter. We the people love these songs. And uh, Stevie Nicks did do this one in concert for a few years. She hasn't done it in a long, long time, though, even though it was a huge hit for her. I'm not going to lie. I wouldn't mind this one making a live comeback. I would expect it before I can't wait, certainly, to be heard live again. I don't know if it's going to happen. Her set lists this year were pretty sticking to that old thing. There was no talk to me on there. I would like her to pull out a deeper hit she hasn't done in a while, but I don't know if it will happen realistically, but a boy can dream, I guess. There you go. Dream on. Yes. That's another rock band who sang that, but another band we love, Aerosmith. (laughs) Maybe if Stevie Nicks or someone she knows is listening, we can say, bring Talk to Me back to your live show. It would be a nice change up, I think. Bring it back, Stevie. Bring it back. Yes. And now we are moving on to song that definitely wasn't a single track number eight the nightmare she co-wrote this song with her brother chris i love this song this is just another example of her turning heartbreak into poetry this song is a bit chilling lyrically at least i mean this could have probably was written initially as a piano ballad i wouldn't be surprised if it were i think this song is about joe walsh because uh, she was having a hard time getting him to pay attention to her 
even though she loved him so much and uh, she had been in dysfunctional relationships before. You don't know the dream until you've known the nightmare. See, you know so much more about her. And I love the way you take those lyrics. This one, this one, I wasn't really a big fan of until about the three minute mark. It's a five minute and 23 second song. It didn't start musically for me. It didn't start to make sense until the three minute mark. I have to be honest, lyrically, I didn't dive deep on this one. But even from the drop of her initial line, it almost sounded like the first half of this song, the vocals were recorded without the uh, backing track from the band. It it felt to me like they were very displaced. Uh, Like I said, at the three minute mark, it comes together and and starts to make sense. And I really start to enjoy it at that point. But at first, it, it was not a favorite of mine coming in. I mean, that might have been how they recorded it. Heard. I wouldn't be surprised if it were, considering this album was a bit scattershot, how it was put together. Most definitely. But for me, it works because of the lyrics of the song. For me, it works. I like that. And what many fans have noticed is this is a self-referential track for Stevie Nicks. We have lyrical references to Dreams, Storms, and Sarah, all Fleetwood Mac songs of the 70s. And that gets some people to pick, oh, this is about Lindsay or Mick Fleetwood, but I think it's about Joe Walsh. That's cool. That's super cool. Because I think that's who was on her mind in 1985 a lot more than Lindsay or Mick. Oh, yeah. As far as I know, this is not a song that dates back to a previous album. Every Nick's album has a song, at least one that dates back to a previous era. On this album, it's I Sing for the Things. But not this one, as far as I know. If it was... uh, Please correct me. I could be wrong. Let us know if Charlie's wrong. I I might be. There are people <laughs> who there are people who know more about Stevie Nicks than I do. They I, exist out there. I'd love to meet them, but I don't think they exist. <laughs> no, they do. Trust me. <laughs> so, with that being said, I'm actually going to mention one of those people who knows more than I do um, when discussing this next track. If I were you, so uh, one of my fellow podcasters not currently doing it steve andrews he did a podcast about madonna that inspired me a bit to do the share podcast and then he did another one and then he for a bit was doing one about stevie nicks and did an episode about rock a little of course and sadly it's no longer up i think there were some music rights issues going on with it Unfortunately, it's a shame because it was a really good podcast I enjoyed listening to. And uh, he said that he thinks this song should have been a single and it would have been a top 10 hit if it were. I have it in my notes. It's single material in my mind, period, period. How is this not a single for the album? I had to look it up when I listened to this song. I was like, how is this not a single? I completely agree. This should have been a single. This is another Rick Knowles co-write. No, this is a single. This song is catchy. It's straightforward. You don't have to dive deep into the lyrics. You're not going to be wondering, oh, I wonder what she's talking about. Not on this song. This is simple. Cuts to the point. 
It's catchy, sounds of the times. Oh, yeah. This was a missed opportunity as a single big time. I have to chalk this up again to the Too Many Cooks wildness of this album, and it got lost inside of there. But, I mean, this hook grabs you, and then that hook stays behind the whole time with the chime sounds. The chimes resonate that hook over and over again through the song while you're listening, you don't even realize it. This is a perfect, I'm so glad you said that. I have goosebumps because sometimes I hit it on the head with the Stevie Nicks and stuff like that. But, you know, musically, this was a single, period. He was right. We're all right. Yeah, we all agree with you, Steve. I hope you listen to it. I'll definitely let him know that we did this. I'm sure he'll be thrilled, I would hope. But, yeah, this should have been a hit. I'm guessing she wrote it about Joe Walsh because... She wanted him to trust in her like she trusted in him. But I love this song. Always been one of my favorites on the album. And uh, this should have been the third single. I definitely see why Talk To Me and I Can't Wait were chosen before it. Those are also huge hooks, but so is this one. Yeah. And uh, we'll get to the third single on the album. It's a great song. Odd choice for a single, though. This should have been it. Yep. No doubt in my mind. This is an awesome song. If you haven't listened to it, please do. You're missing out if you haven't heard it. One of her most underrated gems for sure. And more proof of how awesome Mr. Rick Knowles is. He ended up writing some of her amazing hits for people like Belinda Carlisle, Madonna, and more recently, Lana Del Rey. He even wrote a number one hit that we all know and love, Heaven is a Place on Earth. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. He has the magic touch, I'm afraid. Heard that. And uh, yet it wasn't used on If I Were You as a single. So shame on modern records for not doing that. Yeah, that is that is one of the missed opportunities. I wholeheartedly agree with you. Um, How did how did they drop the ball on that one? I know. I completely agree with that one. And now that we're done with If I Were You, we're only basically saying it's awesome and you should listen to it. And that should have been a single. <laughs> we have a bit more of a interpretive track. This one, I think, gets some questions going. No spoken words, second to last song on the album. This is one of her darkest songs lyrically. The lyrics to this one give me chills. And I looked up an interpretation online and there was one that I completely agreed with. This is a bit probably about in my mind someone online said it i'm going with it this is probably about her friend robin anderson who died of leukemia in august of 1982 this was her best friend from her teenage years and right before she died she gave birth to a baby boy named matthew and a few months later stevie nicks married robin's widower kim anderson and obviously this was not a good idea you're talking about heavy shit man that's what this song's about (laughs) that's what i believe it is about and uh, the interpretation made a point of it because this song mentions august robin died in august and if she's dead she can't speak And Stevie Nicks has discussed in interviews that there was one night she got a sign from Robin when she went into the baby's room and his cradle did not rock. And it normally would every night when she walked in there. And she said, in that moment, I knew she was telling me, I do not like that you did this. I do not like that you married Kim. This was a bad idea. 
And she really believed that. And the marriage did end up being annulled. It only lasted three months. And I uh, do believe this song's about it because it's so dark. And this just cuts deeper than a typical breakup tune. It definitely could have been, but this is deeper in a way, especially with the no spoken word. It's just, it's so dark. Obviously, it sounds like an 80s pop track because it is. It was that time, but this one just is a bit chilling for me, but I love it. And Stevie Nicks did for a while too. This was the one non-single from the album she performed on the Rock A Little Tour. She performed it regularly up until 1994. Yeah, uh, going back to the pop part of this, first time I listened to this song, 10 seconds in, it wholeheartedly reminded me of Highway to the Danger Zone. And I'm looking, and of course, I've been paying attention to the producers throughout this album, and then I look over, and this is the one track produced by Keith Olsen, and I don't know Keith Olsen. I look into him. Boom, he's worked with everything, including the Top Gun soundtrack, Flash Dance soundtrack, Tron soundtrack, uh, Grateful Dead, Terrapin Station, Pat Benatar, Hart, Joe Walsh, the whole nine. I mean, this guy's been across the board, but it really sounded like this corporate track that was put on this album. You know, it was super poppy. It was super 80s poppy, and it, it didn't fit. I agree with you. It felt like a somber lyric. And, uh, and this this track musically felt like it drove uh, harder than those somber lyrics. I don't disagree with that, but I feel that this song needed the drive to get the message across. Because if it were just a simple piano ballad, I think the intensity of the situation would have been lost amidst the somberness. This isn't just somber. This is dark, heavy stuff. Yeah that Stevie Nicks is singing about. This was a really intense episode for her, even if it's not about her marriage. It could be about something else that was clearly an intense episode, and you hear it in these lyrics. The song needed to drive, and that's why it works for me. And uh, Keith Olsen also worked with Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham when they were a duo before they joined Fleetwood Mac. So that was how she knew him. And their relationship did fracture quite a bit because Stevie and Lindsey went to join Fleetwood Mac. Okay. And getting Keith Olsen on the album, it was a last-ditch effort to kind of get the album together because Iovine had jumped ship. I got you. Okay. So, yeah, this was pretty... Last minute. This was definitely one of the later songs added to the album because it's not an Iovine track, but I really enjoy it. I think it drives like it needs to. And yes, it sounds dated, but that was the sound of the time. I can't fault them for that. Nope, it definitely was. There's 80s all over this album, but I mean, especially here in No Spoken Word, perfectly put. Yeah. But it is 80s sounding enough. I think that Danger Zone comment you meant. I think maybe this could have been a single. Maybe so. Maybe so. It's uh, it's right there. Four minutes and 14 seconds. It definitely could have fit as, as a solo. I'm still with uh, If I Were You. I wouldn't put it over If I Were You. Don't yeah. get me wrong. But I think maybe if they wanted to put out a fourth single from the album, this is probably the one I would have picked. Heard that. Not personally, but... In thinking commercially, it's what I would have chosen. Not my personal pick, but I'll discuss that later. 
when I reveal my favorite track on the album. (laughs) (laughs) But speaking of singles and Keith Olsen, we've come to the end of the album, which closes on a simple note with, has anyone ever written anything for you? A long title. This song is heartbreaking. The story behind it's really heartbreaking. So this definitely was inspired by Joe Walsh. No ifs, ands, or buts. One day, Joe Walsh took her on a drive to a site where his daughter Emma used to go to. And there was a water fountain that she could never reach. And sadly, Emma died in 1974 at the age of three in a tragic accident with her mother taking her to preschool. And uh, Joe Walsh told her this story about his daughter he had lost. And there was a fountain there, same fountain that she couldn't reach, with a plaque dedicated to her. And this whole episode uh, really moved Stevie Nicks, understandably. And as a result, what else is a songwriter to do but write a song about it? And she was inspired to do Has Anyone Ever Written Anything For You because of Joe Walsh. And uh, yeah, this is a heartbreaker of a tune. What do you think of this one? I I think it's definitely a heartbreaker. I mean, you, you hit it right on the head why she wrote it. I mean, seeing him write song for Emma and then having that deep sadness and you know it, it it's almost perfect like hey joe has anybody ever written anything for you the way you wrote song for emma is the way i took it uh and it it is it's heartbreaking it is a beautiful beautiful song a beautiful piano driven piece um and, and a soft ender but a, a meaningful ender so so it gets my uh stamp of approval as final track for the album on this one Yeah, yet another strong closing track for Stevie Nicks. The previous two albums had strong ones, so does this one. This one gives me chills. It's not a song I always go out of my way to listen to, but that's because it's so powerful, it's hard to listen to. The video you sent me for that song, well, that was a a newer actress, right? When was when was that video done? I mean, Stevie was was evidently older in the video as well. So This song was featured on American Horror Story Coven. That's who it was. Okay, heard that. And she performed it, and Jessica Lange as Fiona Good told her she loved the song. And even though it wasn't a hit, this is a beloved song amongst fans, and this was the one song on the album she regularly included in her live sets. It was the encore for many, many years, actually. Okay. Not any time I've seen her, but it was encore for a long time. And uh, as I alluded to earlier, this song was chosen as a single. It was the third single from the album, and it made it to number 60 on the Hot 100, which kind of makes sense because I love this song. This was a really weird single choice because uh, it doesn't have the pop song structure. Doesn't really have that verse, chorus, verse thing going at all. And uh, doesn't make sense for me as a single, though. It's clearly a standout of the album. I'm not going to deny that at all, but not a single. If I Were You was right there and this was the single they chose. If I had to go out on a limb, I would say maybe they chose it because the popularity of Joe Walsh and the situation and and their wild, toxic relationship. Um, I mean, it's clearly 
a song written for a certain purpose that that's the only reason i could think of taking it over if i were you the other reason i can think of was that it sounded more like a stevie nicks song than these other tracks here because they're so 80s poppy this one's not really yeah that's a great thought too shooting it out to an audience that was expecting something like a landslide or something like that you know yeah and it makes sense because this song was co-written with Keith Olsen and uh, produced by Rick Knowles. And this was uh, not an easy recording session. Actually, Stevie was so high during it, according to the Gold Dust Woman book, that Olsen was not happy with her vocal. It was out of tune. She had to redo it. And what was left of their strained friendship was ruined after this album was released and recorded. Mm, that's so sad. Yeah. I will say, though, Stevie Nicks, she is a loyal friend. She's kept a lot of the same people in her circle over the years, but bridges have also been burned, and that's what happens when you're addicted to drugs, sadly. Heard that. Heard that. And so there we have Rock a Little. Stevie Nicks' last real popular album for quite some time, her last heavy rotation MTV moment. What grade do you give this album? I'm going B minus. Um, I expected a hard hitting um, Stevie Nicks driven wild vocal uh, extravaganza. And I in I got an 80s Stevie Nicks album. Um, I, I think it suffered. I've said this throughout the podcast. I think it suffered from a little, not a little bit, a lot of too many cooks in the kitchen. Um, and you can feel it. You can feel that uh, mismatch, that that circus, if you will, of musicians, producers throughout the album. Um, not a terrible album by any means. Um, so B minus for that one. If you folks couldn't tell already, I give this album an A. <laughs> I do really enjoy it. I would say it's my second favorite solo album of hers right behind The Wild Heart. That's my number one. Over Belladonna? Yep. Are you joking my ass? I'm not. <laughs> Heard that. Okay. Belladonna is number three, but like I said, it could be interchangeable. I love all of those albums and every song on each of them, but that's just me. Hey man, you you are the the, the Miss Nick's aficionado there. So I, I give you I give you all types, but that's that's unexpected. Belladonna. You want to talk about slapping Belladonna slaps, but that, oh, it that's does. <laughs> I'm not going to deny that. Honestly, it's gone back and forth between this one and Belladonna for me. Wild Heart will always be number one, though. Heard that. Have you heard Wild Heart? I haven't. I haven't. I, I, I'm laying it out as, as honest as anything. I came into this research wise and, and I feel uh, silly now, but I thought Belladonna was the predecessor to this album. And it was a little bit of the reason why I was more let down because this was just way weaker than Belladonna in in my opinion. Yeah, well, Wild Heart really is the transition between those two. I gotta listen to that now. Part of why I like it so much because it begins the synth sounds. It gave us the classic stand back. I'm sure you know that song at least. Most definitely. That's the Wild Heart and- it began her synthesizerness, and it shows the bridge from Belladonna to Rock a Little. It is the Wild Heart. I love it. It'll probably be covered here one day, honestly, because it's one of my favorites ever. But 
This month I wanted to do rock a little, and I'm glad that I did. Favorite oh. song on the album, go. Ooh, man. I, you know what? I didn't write it down, which is crazy. Um, I, and and now going back through it, I, I, I'm, I'm back and forth. Oh, man. I love Imperial Hotel. I know I'm in the... Uh, the minorities, even by the numbers on Spotify, I was blown away. Like, why is nobody on this? Um, but I have to go favorite. Favorite on the album is If I Were You. A good choice. Thanks. Not going to fault you for that. My favorite is Sister Honey. Yeah, Sister Honey. Uh, it, it, I like that track, too. It, it's funny because, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I feel like the three we just spoke about are some of the least listened to as far as the Spotify numbers go, um, which was mind blowing. Imperial Hotel, I think it's like four hundred and thirty six thousand. Like, are you joking me? Yeah. It's it's just such a stronger track than that. I think it's the same way for If I Were You. Yeah, I'm guessing. I'm guessing number one was Talk to Me. You know what? I I have it handy. Hold on. Let me let me pop it up and and throw it to everyone real quick. Yeah. Up a just. On Spotify, uh, wreck a little. The top one is Talk to Me, nine, 9.7 million. Then I Can't Wait at 8.9 million. Rock a little is 1.3 million. I'm sorry, if I were you, was oh, I was wrong about that. If I were you, is above Rock a little at 1.7 million. But yeah, Imperial Hotel is 381,000. How many uh, does uh, has anyone written anything for you have? I can't believe I didn't look. That's the top 16.4 million. Oh, I'm not surprised by that. Probably because of Coven. Heard. Coven definitely brought that one through. It's the one song she acknowledges, frankly, I'm afraid. It's the only one she really acknowledges from this album these days. So I'm not surprised by that. The lowest on the album is The Nightmare. Not surprised. It is the longest on the album, too. This is true. This is true. But yeah, this one's a bit forgotten to the annals of time in some ways, especially in comparison to the two preceding albums. But still think there's a lot of good stuff here. And Stevie Nicks is always fun to discuss. Agreed. I I mean, such a such a wild character, personality, performer, artist. She, like you said earlier, isn't anything but ever boring. Um, and this one is one I didn't know. Uh, so I thank you for picking this one instead of Belladonna or, uh, well, I say I didn't know, but I didn't know many uh, tracks on this album. So thank you for that one. No problem. But next week is an album that you picked. But funny story enough, it's one of my favorites, too. Who's bad? Let's go. Let's do bad. Let's get it. Yes. First bad. Michael Jackson. And what a fitting time we're going in. We're doing the 80s. Can't do the 80s without Michael. And uh, a tape that I burned through as a young man. I, I think I went through three three versions of this tape uh, just from overplaying it. And I can't blame you. This is a top five album for me. Bad, that is. And I cannot wait to dive into it. It's going to be so much fun. I can't wait for it already. But while we're waiting to get bad with you all next week, <laughs> follow this podcast wherever you listen to it. Spotify, Amazon, Apple Podcasts. We're on all of them. 
Also follow us on Facebook and Instagram for goodies related to what we'll be discussing and episode updates at Turntables and Tea Podcasts on both platforms. And in the meantime, we hope you all rock a little while you wait for next week's episode. Peace. See ya. Poor Lily.